Hi, my name is Todd Gray, Executive Director Treasurer for the Kentucky Baptist Convention. Welcome to Leadership Lessons on Facebook Live. The KBC is a convention of 2,360 affiliated churches with a mission of being created by churches for churches to help churches reach Kentucky and the world for, for Christ. We're grateful today to have Dr. Russ Moore gathering uh, or joining us on Leadership Lessons. Dr. Moore serves as the president of the ERLC, which is the Ethics and Religious Liberty Com Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. He's an author of many books, including Tempted and Tried, Adopted for Life, and The Storm-Tossed Family. I'm currently reading Tempted and, and Tried, and it's an, it's an outstanding book. Um, prior to joining the ERLC, Dr. Moore served as Dean of the School of Theology at Southern Seminary and was a teaching pastor at Highview Baptist here in Louisville. He's a native Mississippian, married to Maria, and they are the parents of five sons, two of which just graduated uh, this year, graduated without a graduation. Uh, Dr. Moore, thank you for joining us to speak to Kentucky Baptist, and welcome to Leadership Lessons. We're, we're oh, well, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you. So you spent a good deal of time in Kentucky. How, 16 how years. 16 years. Yeah, and I, I will, I, I always think about the first uh, Sunday that I preached in a Kentucky Baptist church, uh, which was in, in rural Kentucky, maybe a couple hours out from Louisville. And uh, I was, of course, accustomed to Mississippi, where a lot of people smoked, but they hit it. Uh, and, and they wouldn't admit that they did. And I walked up to this church and uh, all the deacons were outside smoking openly, which was kind of startling me. And everybody was tobacco farmers. And uh, the chairman of deacons walked up with a tobacco leaf tie with a tobacco leaf tie tack on it. And he said, you know, you, you probably don't know this, but you probably don't want to preach against tobacco here. I said, well, I wasn't planning on that. He said, well, good. <laughs> and so that was my introduction to Kentucky life. <laughs> if you follow that cultural mandate, you won't preach on tobacco. Uh, you can't avoid <laughs> bourbon, whiskey, uh, horse racing, gambling, and probably need to steer clear of marijuana in, in some, some parts of the Probably not church folks, but but, but um, no doubt you've, you've hit on a Kentucky cultural um, uh, issue, at least not as bad as it used to be, but that same same experience here. So you lead the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission for the Southern Baptist Convention. So could you tell us a little bit about what the ERLC is and what you all do? What's your primary work? Well, we essentially do, you put it down into two categories. One of those things is to help uh, churches, families, uh, Christians, individual Christians to think through how do I follow Christ in terms of moral decision making. So that could be everything from um, how do I serve Jesus in terms of marriage and family and parental decision making? How do I decide about uh, technology as related to my children or to myself, uh, pornography, all of those sorts of issues to the kinds of questions that sometimes are really complicated that come up when a doctor comes out and says your aging uh, parent uh, has these uh, medical options and you're trying to decide what even is this? Am I doing something wrong to help people to work through those things? And then the second thing would be to speak out from uh, the churches to the, the larger outside world, explaining what it is that Christians believe and what we care about. Uh, so that would include everything from uh, dealing with, we deal a lot with uh, foreign governments, for instance, when it comes to persecuted church and and uh, the way that uh, people are treated. We deal with the courts when it comes to religious liberty concerns and, and other things. And we deal with media and with, uh, with culture, uh, technology industry a lot uh, coming to us and saying, 
we don't know Christians and we don't know how Christians think. And so help us to think through what would be considered ethical and unethical and how would this be seen? So we speak out uh, to the larger world. What a, what a, a broad array of, of topics and issues. And I mean, so, you know, intellectually, you're, you're obviously a bright guy. You said you led a group and when I was doing D-Men work at, at Southern and I think we were all amazed at everything you were reading. You quoted from GQ. I think you touched Ladies Home Journal, um, it, uh, an article that you'd read from there. And, and um, so it, it sounds like this is kind of a fit for you, a person who can study a, a lot of different topics and have a pretty good understanding of, of, of each of each of them. So do you, do you feel like the Lord just kind of wired you for the position that you're in? Uh, probably so. I think that um, I think that one of the things that's interesting over the years is to see how much changes there are all sorts of uh, all sorts of things that emerge that no one I, I just saw somebody had posted a picture of a woman with a coronavirus mask on taking a picture with her iPhone of a an ice cream cone or something and said I'm imagining explaining that to somebody in 1995 who would <laughs> have any idea so many things change so quickly and rapidly and yet the fundamental questions uh, remain the same. And so a, a lot of times what you're seeing, even in the middle of fast changes, are repeating, uh, repeating issues that really aren't, you know, as Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun in that sense. Dr. Moore, I'm taking notes while you speak, so if you see me looking down. When you say uh, fundamental questions remain the same, uh, what, what name a couple of those questions? Well, I think one of those questions is exactly what we see in Genesis 3, where uh, God says, Adam, where are you? And Adam and Eve are, are hiding themselves from the presence of God in the creation. That's, that, that comes up just repeatedly in terms of the way that we, uh, left to ourselves, live out our, our moral lives. Mm-hmm. It, hiding, people hide behind different things. And so uh, often what you see is that, that fear of the presence of God uh, and the need to distract oneself from the presence of God. And so that shows up just continuously or move over a, another chapter over to Genesis four and Cain and Abel and the very same dynamics. They show up uh, in terms of workplace dynamics. They show up in terms of uh, things that go on uh, in in the broader uh, world. I mean, it, it, it's really fundamentally the same human problem that's addressed by the gospel. Just imagine if someone announced on January 1 of 2020 that um, just be prepared. Here's what's coming in the next six months. Right. The first three months of your year is going to go along pretty good. Then around the middle of March, we're going to have a a worldwide pandemic and the entire economy is going to be shut down. Everybody's going to stay home. Um, At the end of that, we're going to have some some pretty serious race uh, things to work on. And then following that, there's going to be some new things coming from the Supreme Court. Yeah. Yep. Nope. And who knows what next week? <laughs> who knows what next week will, will hold. So let's talk about your work. Um, if you were to think about a typical day, and I'm sure you don't have a, a, a typical, typical day. Maybe you have some items in the week that you're trying to get accomplished. What are some some big rocks, important things that you're doing kind of on a week by week basis? Well, it really does change uh, from day to day and week to week. And and more importantly, I don't ever know when whatever it is that I've, I've planned is going to be disrupted uh, by. So I can I can I mean, and most of us have this situation, but you you can sort of plan out what it is that you think you're going to do. 
but that can be that can be disrupted in a minute. And so it it really is different, not just day to day. It's different hour to hour. And so I might be uh, working with a church one hour on setting up uh, an adoption ministry and then uh, the next hour uh, dealing with a CEO of a technology company uh, thinking through artificial intelligence and then the next hour working on a court brief uh, to go before court and then the next hour uh, dealing with uh, writing some uh, curriculum on premarital counseling. I mean, it, it just changes from <laughs> from so hour to hour. Your background was you were teaching at a seminary. And I mean, it's, if, if there's anything that's routine, it has to be seminary teaching. Because once you've taught the course, you're probably just building on it and adding to it year after year. You were a teaching pastor at a church. And while there are challenges, that's fairly routine as well. What was it like for you the first few weeks and, and maybe first year when you transitioned to ERLC and all these this constant barrage of activity and, and change? Well, in that respect, it's not all that different because I, I was just thinking about somebody was asking me, um, about to do a project on 10 years in the past in one's life and 10 years in the future in one's life and was saying, what was, uh, what was 10 years ago like for you? And I said, well, it was exhausting because I was serving in an administrative role uh, as chief academic officer at a seminary. I was teaching a full load of classes and I was preaching every Sunday morning, teaching Sunday school every Sunday morning, preaching every Wednesday night, doing counseling and traveling all over the place and writing. And I don't think I knew how exhausted I was at the time. I think most people kind of realize that often you don't realize how exhausted you are until after <laughs> you look back on it and say, wow, that really was intense. So in that sense, it, it didn't, um, it didn't, some things have changed, but that part of it didn't change. So how do you stay, Dr. Moore, how do you stay on top of all these issues or how do you stay up to date on all these issues? Uh, you, you, you must read papers, newspapers, you, you read magazines, periodicals, you have to read books. How do you do, how much time do you spend reading and listening? Uh, well, I, I read a lot, but I have, I have always, I'm just curious about a lot of different things. And so for me, um, part of it is keeping up with what's going on in the world. But another part of it is just keeping in touch with what goes on in, in terms of human beings. So one of the things that actually is uh, as helpful to me as anything is doing a one-on-one -on -one counseling with people where I sit down and say, what's going on in your life? Because you start to see, um, you start to see not just the things that people are grappling with, but also the way that they're that they're working themselves through it. And, and often these are things that because I haven't faced them, I'm not aware of. So I, I mean, I remember for instance, it was really, uh, it was really transformative for me uh, when I was in Kentucky, uh, having a conversation with a, a young woman, I'll never forget her who came up and said, I'm never going to marry. And, uh, and I said, okay, well, uh, I just assumed she was giving herself to the mission of you know, 1 Corinthians 7 sort of thing. And no, it was because her dad had died by suicide. Her grandfather had died by suicide. And she said, I know that's eventually where my life is going to be. And I don't want my children to go through what I have gone through. And so I, I just had to spend some 
time there pouring into her to say, you're, you're not destined toward that end. But it helped me to really, that was not a situation I had had faced before that sense of living under kind mm -hmm. of a sentence. And it helped me to realize uh, often what's going on uh, in people's lives. So those sorts of conversations can help a lot uh, just in terms of, of reading the way that people are trying to find a storyline that makes sense of their lives. Wow. So what, what, what do you find in your work? What do you find gratifying or what is something that you, that you've since the Lord, uh, you, you've seen the Lord do through your work? Well, it's one of the best things about um, the work that I do is getting to be a part of uh, ministries that are taking place in, in multiple different ways mm -hmm. and helping people to uh, replicate those those ministries. So, for instance, um, you you may have often what happens is a church will uh, go in and devise a ministry because of a need that somebody in the congregation, usually just one or two people initially, they see that and they meet that need. And what happens is often those ministries are things that the rest of us haven't even thought about. Mm -hmm. So for instance, there was a church in Tennessee that realized they had a lot of, um, uh, a lot of kids who, when they were being removed from their, their parental homes, uh, in a foster care situation. Uh, often that would happen in the middle of the night. Parents are arrested or something like that. And what they had to do was to sit there with the social worker while the social worker called uh, all the people who were on the list to say, are you willing to take these kids temporarily? So they had to sit there, listen to the rehearsal of what had happened to their parents and listen to how many times people were saying no. And they're just sitting in this building. And the church came in and said, what if we provided a space where we're able to minister to the kids with equipped and trained people to do that and give a private place for the social worker to be able to make those sorts of uh, telephone calls and then make this ongoing connection? Well, I mean, that's the sort of thing where uh, often you haven't even thought about. I mean, I've been working in orphan care uh, 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 ministry for, for 20 years. But I thought, you know, I've never even thought about that aspect of ministry. This church has done that. And then multiple other churches are able to say, wait a minute. Well, maybe that's not exactly what our situation is here or where our gift set here is here. But it causes us to think about some other things we can be we can be doing. And so that's really when you can see God working in that way. That's really uh, exciting, thrilling to me. And you've just described what's happening every day in Kentucky and every other state as well. 10,000 children in foster care yeah. and, and what a social worker is doing is exactly what, what you what you said. Call, 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 call until a, yeah. a family is available to take that take those children. Incredible. Well, so this week I, I would appreciate you taking the time to join any time, but especially this week. My guess is you've been fairly busy with the a Supreme Court decision that was announced in uh, the ruling on uh, Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia. Could you give us an overview of the case and then the, the ruling? And then let's talk. We'll talk specifically about some implications. Well, what the ruling essentially said is that um, Title seven of the 1964 Civil Rights Act that says that um, that a business cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. 
that that applies to sexual orientation and gender identity, that, that that's what sex means in that context. And so uh, the argument that was written by Justice Gorsuch um, essentially said, because uh, you can't discriminate in terms of gender identity and sexual orientation without discriminating on the basis of sex. So if you, uh, for instance, would, uh, you would of course be perfectly happy for a woman to come to work dressed as a woman in an address. If you then said to a man, uh, you can't do that, then that's discriminating on him uh, against him because he's a man. That's the, the logic of the argument. And so uh, the, the word sex then is expanded uh, in terms of sexual orientation and gender identity. So the argument from the dissent is, well, obviously, if you were to get in a time machine and go back to 1964 and say to anybody who's voting on, on Title VII, this is going to apply to transgenderism, uh, they would say, what's transgenderism? And when you explained it, they would say that obviously has nothing to do with what we're talking about. But Justice Gorsuch's legal philosophy is it's not the intention in the mind of the people writing this. It's what the words in the text are. And so that was the that was the argument that was being used. And as uh, I just did a, um, a conversation with a legal scholar friend uh, where uh, he was saying, and rightly so, the argument was made uh, tailor made to Justice Gorsuch on that basis. So that's what the well, that's what the ruling is. Well, so I mean, Southern Baptists went through this um, year, years ago on on our view of the Bible that that there's either authorial intent or there's a reader response uh, interpretation of the, of the scripture, and so it just sounds like in real practical terms that they're giving a reader response interpretation of of a law. Well, he he wouldn't uh, Justice Gorsuch wouldn't argue that it's reader response. What he would say is in any given law. Uh, the issue are, the issue is the words. Um, and so it's what the law says. And so you could uh, you could pass a law that you would say, well, we didn't think through all the implications of that law. Well, the law still holds. Uh, so that's that's the argument that that he's using. And of course, the 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 debate then is, yes, but uh, does uh, does sex entail? Uh, sexual orientation and, and gender identity. And so he, uh, Justice Gorsuch, managed to make it in this very, um, very specific to his legal philosophy sort of, of argument. Now, what are the implications of that going to be long term? We don't know. I mean, there are all sorts of different directions this could go uh, long term. So what kind of questions are you receiving, Dr. Moore, this week uh, on the heels of this announcement and this this ruling? Well, uh, the main thing was immediately people uh, saying, pastors um, uh, and church leaders and others saying, you know, as, as soon as the, the decision was announced and it's on the television and so forth, saying, does this does this apply to churches? And the answer to that is is no, doesn't apply to churches because of the First Amendment. But uh, what is unresolved is how does this affect uh, religious institutions? So when you're thinking about I me, mean, there's so many things that are are done in terms of uh, ministries, Christian colleges and universities and um, uh, homeless uh, shelters. And you know, just go through the whole list of, of things. That's where we don't really know. And, and part of that is because 
there are some other Supreme Court decisions that uh, are yet to be uh, announced uh, that are going to answer those questions one way or the other. So, for instance, there's a, a case that may be announced as soon as next week, um, Our Lady of Guadalupe case that has to do with the ministerial exemption. Uh, so uh, what does it what does it mean uh, to say that a religious institution should be able to choose those who are part of its ministry without the interference of the state? If that case goes the way that I think it will, and, and I could be wrong, but the way that I think it will, uh, then that would mean that there's a there's an exemption in term depending on how it's argued, depending on how it's laid down. So we don't know. It's going to a, a lot of this is going to depend on what other decisions are made. And Justice Gorsuch in his in his um, in his uh, decision, he he argued that there are religious liberty concerns that are addressed elsewhere. So the court's going to have to do that one way or the other. Okay. Well, we'll have to we'll have to wait and see for more implications. Yeah. Uh, important part of your work and uh, the, the work of ERLC, and of course you had this position before you were, were working for the ERLC, is is um, the subject of abortion. Mm-hmm. In Kentucky, uh, 3,200 lives are taken annually legally by legalized abortion in our state. Um, many are work, working to oppose abortion, even see it abolished. So what is the ERLC doing to help churches uh, think about abortion and even, even oppose uh, legalized abortion? Well, it's a multi-pronged approach. So we're we're working in uh, in a variety of different ways. One of those ways is in terms of the courts. So another uh, a court decision that will be coming out um, sometime this month uh, has to do with a a really specific um, regulation of abortion uh, that, that will say a state can say you cannot operate an abortion clinic if you don't have admitting privileges to a hospital. And that's, that's been a big point of, uh, this debate. Uh, so in the courts, then also in terms of the legislatures, not just the United States Congress, but also in state legislatures, because a lot of the court challenges that are coming to the legality of abortion have to do with um, have to do with what's happening in states. That's where the, the challenges take place. And then in terms of church ministry. So equipping, uh, I mean, one of the things that I talk about a lot is the fact that sometimes I think there are people who think um, if if Roe is overturned, and please God, let Roe be overturned. Uh, but if it is, some people uh, assume that means abortion's gone. And the, the, well, actually, what that means is that this struggle has only just begun because now that turns it over to 50 individual states. And so we're going to have to uh, we're going to have to be uh, continuing to work and working even harder in those areas. And that means recognizing that when you think about what takes place in the violent act of uh, an abortion, harming both unborn child and that child's mother is that you have the devil working in two different ways. Uh, so you, you think about, for instance, what uh, the devil's doing with Eve in Genesis three, he starts with deception. You shall not surely die. And then he ends up with accusation. And so that's the way the devil works. And so I often will tell people nobody's more pro-choice 
on the way into the abortion clinic than the devil. And nobody's more pro-life on the way out from the abortion clinic than the devil, because what he's wanting to say on the front end is there are no consequences to this. And then on the back end, he wants to say, you are completely irredeemable. And if if uh, if anybody knew what has happened, you're you're not somebody that a God could love. And so what we have to do in the in our churches is to combat both ends of that, mm-hmm. which is to stand up and talk about uh, God's commitment to human life and to vulnerable human life. And we have to speak to those who've had abortions or who've paid for abortions to talk about what the gospel of Jesus Christ is and what the blood of Jesus Christ does. Uh, and so the accusation that the devil gives is right against all of us. Uh, it's right in terms of the facts. Uh, what's wrong is that if we're in Christ, uh, we're joined to him in the cross. And so there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And one of the things that has um, has proven to be true is that often if you look in a congregation, some of the people who are the most effective in terms of uh, pro-life ministry, not just in terms of advocacy, but in terms of persuasion with vulnerable uh, women who are maybe abortion-minded, with ministry to women, finding ways for them uh, to, to keep their babies and to, and to live. Uh, often these are people who have been through this and have repented of this and have seen the depths uh, of this, and now they're it's you know we, we've seen that pattern going all the way back to the apostle paul and so that is a that's a key aspect of it as well is congregation by congregation by congregation you mentioned something dr moore that i don't think i hear very often that that um two two are harmed in abortion obviously in the life of the child but you also mentioned the mother and and went through the scenario with with the devil um many see women as a victim in that in that case a, a person without options person doing the only thing they can they can do um what 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 do you say to to that kind of objection Uh, not so much about women's reproductive rights that's i think that's a whole never another issue but just women who seem to have no real choices um any any thoughts there well i think what uh what has to take place is uh that there there have to be people who are recognizing and loving uh, women who are in those places of crisis in order to say there are nonviolent uh, means uh, and, and there's a community of people who love you and who can care for you. And that's one of the things that you see taking place all around, um, all around the country. I think of in Louisville, Nicole's place, uh, for instance, was uh, one of the, the models Uh, for the rest of the country at a place that's doing a thousand things at once. So they're, they're persuading women of the value of their child's life and also the possibilities of their own lives. And then they're coming in and meeting needs, spiritual needs, emotional needs, mental needs, physical needs, job training needs. It's the whole spectrum of, of these things. Uh, and that's um, that's what the church has been doing for 2000 years. I mean, if you if you look at those early uh, documents about what is so striking to the Roman world about the Christian church, uh, it, it's right there. We, we don't define people in terms of their usefulness or in terms of their power, but in terms of the image of God. And that means that means recognizing why people 
are being driven toward uh, uh, abortion. One of the things that was chilling to me several years ago was reading an account of a woman who um, had worked in an abortion clinic. And she said, you know, I think most people assume that my clients are pro-choice. She said, I almost never have pro-choice clients. She said, I almost have never have anyone who would say this is just a blob of tissue. This is not a baby. She said, these are almost always Roman Catholic or evangelical uh, young women. And they're almost always talking about this in terms of a baby and in terms of taking the life of a baby. And they're saying, in the case of the Catholic young women, I'm going to go to confession. I have to uh, trust that God will forgive me. You're you're freezing up momentarily while we're while we're talking. Hopefully, it'll loosen up here in um in a moment. Can you still hear me, Dr. Moore? industry that's uh that that's really at the hub of it yeah so you froze up just for just for a second there let's let's talk about uh, opposing abortion and organizing for it are there any groups right now you mentioned nicole's place as a ministry i'm assuming this is a similar to a a pregnancy center there are about 55 of those i think in in kentucky we uh, spent some time yesterday with uh, the lady here in louisville that leads kentucky's uh, right to life organization she mentioned um, I guess she would refer to it as a rescue that just happened that they were able to share literature and a, a lady decided not to abort her her child uh, who do you think is doing really good work currently on the issue of abortion well I think there are a lot of uh, a lot of groups but I think that the most effective are taking place uh, organically church by church by church okay. uh, both in terms of ministry and advocacy people who uh, care about this and are uh, speaking about it and living it out. I think that that's, I think that that's happening uh, organically all across the country and people learning from one another in terms of what are the uh, effective ways to do that. Uh, there's a, in Oklahoma, it's led by the Oklahoma Baptist Convention there, um, every year a Rose Day uh, event. Uh, in most of these, uh, most of these things that I go to that are pro-life, uh, I am the minority as a Protestant. Most, most of the leadership is Catholic. In Oklahoma, that's, that's exactly the first. Uh, and what would happen is you would, uh, a lot of Catholic pro-life saying, oh, we're, we're so thankful for the Oklahoma Baptist Convention and their, their leadership. They're really the conveners here. And what they do is every year come in and educate people uh, on this issue, also deal with legislators. Uh, about it really, really effectively. Well, that's uh, that's very encouraging to hear. I know I know Hans Stillbeck at at um, at Oklahoma Baptist. Yeah. That gives us a good a good group to to reach out to. Um, so when when a little bit different angle, I, I have a suspicion that we've relied pretty heavily on politicians, elected officials to do the heavy lifting on abortion. I, w- I wonder. I recently heard an overview of a book. I don't remember the title of the book. But it's something like tipping point, and it's kind of a study of what percentage of the population has to become true believers on an issue for the the hearts and minds of the general public to change. And um, LGBTQ is yeah. a classic example. They've moved so quickly in in, in acceptance. Um, some of the things you're describing sound more like those kind of issues. They're 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 ground level. They're grassroots. 
they're they're just trying to change the mindset of, of ordinary people rather than simply relying on elected folks to get the job done. Yeah, because that's that's really how it happens is whether or not you have uh, not just that you have people who are in a particular place in terms of how they think about these things, but people who actually care about it uh, and, and are willing to to talk about it and also willing to do something about it. That's how things that's how things ultimately change. And one of the things that's really encouraging uh, about the pro-life movement is the fact that there even is a pro-life movement. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it, in 1973, the assumption would have been this is just people are going to become adjusted to this and people are going to become uh, so normalized to this that that there won't even be a question about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not happened. On the other hand, uh, there are a lot of um, there are a lot of things to be discouraged and worried about. And one of those things has to do with technology. I mean, we're accustomed right now to thinking about abortion in terms of clinics. Mm -hmm. uh, but as technology continues to work, it's becoming more and more pharmaceutical. Uh, and, and that will increasingly be the case. Well, what does that mean? It, it means sort of the same thing potentially pornography. Um, right. With the rise of technology, uh, pornography became a completely different question than it was when you were simply talking about, I mean, I tell people all the time, a, a moment for me uh, 20 years ago uh, when I was at Southern driving through uh, Indiana, uh, right. coming back, I pulled off the interstate and there was a group of people across from the gas station and uh, they were all gathered up. And I said to the guy that was uh, there at the gas station, what's going on over there? And he said, they're protesting that adult movie theater. And what they do is they gather there and they're taking pictures of the license plates and putting it up at the general store downtown to try to shut it down. And I thought, oh, well, and uh, I've thought about that a lot. So I don't know whether they ever shut that down. But what was right around the corner from that was a digital revolution that was going to be able to get a lot of people who never would have gone. You know, they never would have gone to an adult movie theater who are getting uh, getting destroyed by this. So uh, I think a similar thing could be at work in terms of abortion. So we have reasons for encouragement and and reasons to be uh, really sober about uh, about how deep the, the darkness is there. Those are those are helpful insights, Dr. Moore. Let's move on and talk about uh, race relations in, in our country and especially as it relates to churches and, and pastors. So this will take a little bit of a setup. So give me a minute to kind of talk through um, a number of our pastors here in Kentucky are concerned about race in America. Uh, many want to say something. Proverbs 39, 31.9, uh, King Lemuel's counsel to uh, mother's counsel to him. Uh, speak up. For folks, Galatians 2.11, uh, the greatest and second commandment urges these leaders to feel like they can't be silent about race issues. Uh, several want to support their African-American friends and neighbors and are doing that, but feel like they can't identify with a group like the Black Lives Matter group, not the statement, but the group itself. Um, most Kentucky Baptists, I think it's safe to say, are supportive of law enforcement and at the same time opposed to harassment, overuse of unnecessary force, pro-filing, et cetera. Um, most black men I know 
have at least one experience of being pulled over by a police officer for no apparent reason. Uh, so that's not been my experience. I've been pulled over, but there was always a clear reason of why mm-hmm. I was being being pulled over. So what advice do you have for pastors who want to address this issue, the issue of race, and uh, be, a, be a real friend uh, for their, their, their African-American friends and neighbors? Well, I think uh, the the first step of that is seeing and recognizing what it is that the Bible calls us to, which is this is a uh, this is a repeated and major theme throughout the scriptures uh, from Genesis one in terms of what humanity is uh, all the way through to the way that uh, that Deuteronomy and the prophets uh, talk about our responsibility to the vulnerable around us, uh, then moving into the way Jesus uh, speaks to this his very first uh, sermon in uh, in his hometown synagogue his inaugural sermon in his hometown synagogue uh, people are graciously receiving the words that are coming from his mouth the text says and then he turns around and says yes but uh, what about what God has done with the widow of Zarephath and with Naaman the Syrian and they were uh, enraged toward him uh, and then on into Galatians and Ephesians the way Jesus is putting his church together in, in Christ. And so that means we have to bear one another's burdens. Um, and so white uh, Christians have to have uh, consciences that are lined up with those of Jesus and also those that recognize what sorts of burdens are being borne uh, by their uh, African-American or, or other uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. And so that means becoming aware of those things and uh, speaking to those, that doesn't mean that you have to know how to comprehensively address every uh, issue, but it does mean that you have to recognize what racism is. And what racism fundamentally is, is not a thing, it's a religion. Uh, this is the idolatry of the flesh uh, and the exaltation of the flesh in order to domineer over, uh, over others. And so that's something that has to be addressed uh, with uh, with the cross of Jesus Christ. And so, Dr. Moore, listening is an important part of, of that. Listening without critique, listening without um, fact, you know, kind of fact checking. When someone's grieving, especially these recent weeks, the, um, the George Floyd death here in Louisville, Breonna Taylor, yeah. part of that, Ahmaud Arbery. Um, there's 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 a, a, a general emotional expression that's happening. That's not the time to fact check a friend on the level of their emotionalism or what they're what they're dealing um, with. But I, I personally called several African American leaders, and what I heard was something that's just not in my experience, but is in in, in the experience of each of these. Uh, I asked, how are these these things impacting you, your family, and the the church that you that you serve? Every man I called said, my, my wife is weeping over yeah. the death of this person. Um, my wife is seldom weeping over the death of someone on the news. But the reason that their wife was weeping was because they're thinking of their own children, their own grandchildren, right. and uh, what they may have to experience. So I think listening is, is obviously a very important part. What mistakes and pitfalls can we avoid um, meaning white, white pastors and leaders uh, when we're trying to uh, understand uh, speak into uh, a lot of folks are just afraid to say anything. I mean, if you get on social media, it, whatever you say is not going to be right. <laughs> it's you're going to, you're going to, it's a, a whole segment's going to blow up over anything that you put out. I, any wisdom, um, mistakes and pitfalls to be avoided. 
Well, I think the the main thing for uh, white Christians is to have a, a Galatians one ten understanding of one's accountability before Christ, um, and then also a Galatians two understanding of one's accountability to uh, not just the people who are around you right now, but future generations of people. So when the Apostle Paul, for instance, confronts Simon Peter to his face, he says in Galatians uh, two, because why is Simon Peter refusing to eat with the Gentiles? It's it's not actually because he doesn't think he should eat with Gentiles. He he's, he's he knows better than that in the basis of the book of Acts. It's because he was fearful of other people. And so Paul uh, Paul withstands that. And then he also says when it comes to the the false teachers who were exalting the flesh, he said we didn't yield to them for a moment so that the gospel would be preserved for you. And so there's a, a, a responsibility to one another in terms of uh, the body of Christ. There's a responsibility to future generations. And there also is a responsibility of understanding what racism does, not just to the people that it harms, but to the racists themselves. Uh, this is a sin against God. And uh, that means that racism doesn't just hurt people, although it certainly does. And that would be reason enough to oppose it. It also sends people to hell. Mm. And so uh, we have to uh, deal with that in terms of um, not just those who are being harmed by racism, but in terms of the racists, in terms of calling them to repentance and and uh, also uh, the the sort of mentality that comes up with. Uh, when, for instance, and when when we talk about some of these issues with policing, uh, one of the things that is very obvious is that the people who are the most uh, outraged often, in my experience, at bad, abusive policing are good, ethical police officers, law as enforcement officers. As it should be. As it should be, in the same way that uh, if, if you have somebody in the military, uh, when you're talking about some uh, somebody who's acting dishonorably or unethically uh, in uniform, that's going to be the person who's going to be the most offended by that. So if you think about what John the Baptist is doing when the soldiers and the tax collectors come to him and they say, how then do we live? And uh, he, he talks to them about not extorting people, not uh, exploiting the vulnerable. So there's a responsibility for the church also in terms of shaping and forming consciences, uh, not just in terms of what do I, what do I not do, but also what are the things that I don't even see to question? Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, h- how do we know that it's by being shaped and formed, uh, morally and ethically. Super helpful. So let's, let's talk about leadership a little bit. Uh, John Maxwell's known for saying that leadership is influence. You've served in a, a wide variety of ministry um, settings and contexts. Who are some of the most effective leaders that you've worked with or been around, and and what what about them makes them a good leader? Well, probably one of the most effective leaders that I've ever known just died. Um, uh, and I couldn't, I was supposed to speak at his funeral and because of the pandemic, I couldn't. And he was my boyhood pastor uh, wow. by the name of M.L. Thaler, who had served my church, Woolmarket Baptist Church in Biloxi, 
uh, during my boyhood years, but um, had been serving for a long time in Pine Bluff, Arkansas, uh, where he had retired. But he was he was an effective leader because he had a kind of uh, tranquility and calmness about him and also a gravity uh, to him. So he was not easily rattled. Um, and he he seemed to know who he was. He knew what mattered and what didn't matter and had a long term view uh, in a way that affected a lot of people's lives in ways that um, in ways that I think people don't know. Um, I mean, I, I uh, when I went to him when I was grappling with a call to ministry, uh, I'll just never forget sitting down and I hadn't talked to anybody about this. Uh, except God, and I was really grappling with it and just blurted it out. I think, I think God's calling me to ministry. One of the most helpful things to me is just how calm he was at that moment to say, well, good. And then, uh, I mean, that, that was just sort of, uh, sort of the, the way that he was, and he was able to bring a, a depth and a gravity, and he also was authentic. Uh, one of the things that was really helpful to me because uh, I went through uh, a really difficult time with seeing uh, some things uh, where people were one thing in public and something very different in private. And as a teenager, there came a point where I was thinking, is that what, is that what Christianity actually is? And, and I've just been deceived. He was a major reason uh, why I was able to see that that wasn't the case, because he was the exact same person. Not to say he wasn't a sinner. Of course he was. Uh, but he was the same person behind closed doors as he was uh, as he was other places. And that was I mean, I, I, I've spent my entire life thinking about how how much I owe that guy. One of the great things about his example is the, um, the the church where you grew up. Not a large church, was it? No. Yeah. And no. So it's, it's wonderful when a, you know when a, when a, a guy who served faithfully behind the scenes. No one knows. You know, the world doesn't know who he is, and yet his life and ministry uh, impacted yours and no doubt many many others. Uh, Dr. Paul House was at Southern Seminary when yes. you were doing your PhD work. He used to make this statement in Old Testament class. He said, uh, "Your sole purpose in life." Uh, maybe to be an example to others of what not to do. So the other side of the question is, what are some mistakes that you've seen leaders make that that uh, common mistakes that that all of us would want to avoid? Well, I think uh, one of uh, the the mistakes that I've seen is a uh, is a short term uh, view. There's a, a leadership expert who's not a Christian, uh, but whose work I. I listen to and pay a lot of attention to named Seth Godin, mm -hmm. who uh, talks about the difference between amateurs and professionals and hacks. And uh, says a, a hack is essentially a professional, but with a short term view. Mm -hmm. And so whatever, uh, whatever I need to do at the moment in order to address whatever is right here in front of me, but without seeing what's, uh, what's down the line. I think that's a really, really dangerous place to be uh, in terms of leadership. And then an, another part of that is uh, uh, there is a way that um, 
I mean, I, just this year, I have seen three friends or acquaintances uh, in ministry die by suicide. And, and there are a lot of people who are in that situation. I think what happens is the pressures of, of ministry that, that come upon us all, uh, often they can drive us to a kind of isolation and then people can, people end up in a situation where you don't know uh, just how depleted you are and people respond to it in different ways. So there are uh, some people who respond to it by uh, secretly numbing themselves with substances or with pornography or uh, some people who their mental health deteriorates uh, or some people it, it shows up in terms of a quarrelsome, angry uh, spirit. I mean, uh, that, that, Often, and I, I told somebody uh, younger in ministry the other day, um, I said, you know, when you see, I've lived long enough to see a lot of the sort of professionally quarrelsome people mm-hmm. um, that exist in any church or in any place, often there is a deep, deep woundedness, and, and often there's something that's being covered uh, that then is exposed later on. Well, that's a dangerous place to to be. And so I think that sometimes ministry is inherently isolating where it's very difficult to have people around you uh, to be able to say, I mean, often people in ministry, the people that they talk to are either the people that they're serving and they don't want to, you, you don't want to, you, you feel like I, I don't want to, uh, cause them alarm uh, about me. That's one uh, side. Yeah, that's one side of it. I don't want to have this used against me down the road. Exactly. I that's ex- this person. Yeah. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Or they're dealing with people that, you know, for lack of a better word, are are kind of competitors. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it, we know mentally that's not true. Right. But sometimes it it, it can feel that way, and so that can way. that can leave people out you know, out in a, in a isolated place that can, that can go on for a long time and end up in some, some dangerous ways. Dr. Moore, when you made the statement just now about three acquaintances and what they're going through, that the context that we're in right now, pastors have, have, have run hard for three solid months in, yeah. an, in an arena they've never had to run in before. And they're experiencing fatigue in ways that, and it's, and it's going to start showing up now. And yeah. uh, I really felt led to pause and pray. So I, I want to do that now and just mm-hmm. pray. Our, our pastors. Yeah. Uh, Father God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you for those that serve churches all over the world, all over the country, and, and right here in Kentucky. And I pray for each of our Kentucky Baptist pastors, especially, that you give them the grace they need uh, mm-hmm. to take the time they need to care for themselves. They'll have wisdom, dear Lord. They can get away time, alone time, time with their family. They can be refreshed and, and be poured back into as they've been pouring into others. And please protect them from the evil one when many of them are in a place of uh, a mental, emotional uh, exhaustion and fatigue. We pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for um, allowing allowing that. Uh, Dr. Moore, in leadership, someone said the, the invitation to leadership is the invitation to criticism. Uh, your, your role by its nature uh, requires of you to take positions and publish positions on various issues. You may be 100% in agreement with all your positions. You may have some positions in the past that you think different about now, but it does invite criticism. How have you learned to handle criticism um, without just taking it all inward 
um, on, on yourself? Well, anybody in ministry is going to have to contend with criticism. And I think the, the main thing is, um, and I heard somebody say this a long time ago, you have to understand who your primary audience is. And this was somebody who wasn't a Christian, but he was talking to me, he said, you're, you're, if you're speaking just generically to everybody, then you're always, uh, you're, you're not going to do that. You have to understand who your primary um, uh, audience is. And for a follower of Jesus, and finally, judgment season. What I've found is I've seen people who have, in order to protect themselves from criticism, uh, end up either just paralyzed and doing nothing uh, or um, people who, in order to protect themselves from from criticism, uh, lie and, and say, I'm just going to say whatever it is that I need to say, even if it is contrary to. Uh, to my conscience and what I think is best. Well, that's that's not only wrong morally, but it's also self-defeating. Uh, ultimately, uh, that 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 ultimately is is seen through. So, I just would say, uh, understand and know uh, who you are in Christ, and then understand and know the people that you. I mean, I think one of the things that can happen in ministry is uh, I I was saying this not long ago to uh, a young guy in ministry who had, um, you know, some people in his congregation that were just critiquing everything that he did in really quarrelsome sorts of ways, using all kinds of underhanded tactics. And he said, I'm going to leave. And I said, okay. I said, well, that might be the thing to do. I said, how many people is that in your congregation? And he said, oh, it's like 5%. And they were leading people to Christ, the church. And I said, why would you throw aside uh, the 95% of the people that God has given you for 5% of the people who are just trying to bully you out of existence so that you can go down the street and start all over again with another 5% that are going to be there uh, everywhere? They're going to be so too. Yeah. And I think, I think some of it has to do with um, – uh, some of it has to do with the fact that often, um, I mentioned Seth Godin a few uh, minutes ago. He has a little book called The Dip um, that I think is really uh, important here where he talks about uh, persevering and uh, and working through. I think there's a temptation sometimes in ministry when you have uh, something that that takes place to say, well, I'm just going to give up and and uh, go somewhere else. And often, as I said to this this uh, person, uh, this younger pastor, I said, are the the people that are are these the people that you would go to for spiritual counsel? Or and he said, no. I said, okay, well then you can't be held hostage to every opinion about you. Uh, and I think that's a. I think that eventually, what happens is uh, people either learn that lesson, or uh, they end up in a situation where they just lose sight of themselves and their their ministries. And that's what that's what ultimately is a tragedy.
That's good counsel. Uh, Dr. Moore, we're moving toward wrapping up. I've got a couple of questions I want to make sure I get in. So Southern Baptists historically were known as an evangelistic people. We seem to have waned in that area. There seems to be a desire for it to see a resurgence there. Uh, you and I are both in places of, of leadership. If we're going to become evangelistic, it'll require folks like us and our pastors to lead that way. Uh, where, where do most of your evangelism conversations um, take place? Where does that happen for you? Uh, most of uh, my evangelistic conversations happen with uh, with people who uh, I deal mostly every day w- with people who don't know the Lord mm-hmm. and uh, mostly with people who not only don't know the Lord, but for whom I'm often the only Christian they know. Well, wow. uh, and what I have what I have found is that that doesn't uh that doesn't lead to what you would expect, which is kind of a hostility. It leads to a kind of curiosity mm-hmm. uh, where where people will say, uh, "Tell me why," you know. And so you seem like a, a fairly intelligent person. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me why so, you believe this this gospel message. Yeah, and so having the 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 opportunity to explain those things and to apply that personally. Mm-hmm. in terms of uh, their own lives and to, to build relationships also where you're able to then come in in time. What I often tell people is if you look at uh, what's happening with the prodigal son, um, one of the things that that often we don't pay much attention to is that this happens after a time of famine that mm-hmm. he comes to himself. So sometimes the sorts of seeds that you're planting then when there comes a point of crisis, you're able to re-engage that kind of uh, conversation. Um, And then also the second part of that is to say, one of the things that I've learned in recent years in terms of evangelism is that it's not uh, just as important as whoever it is that you're speaking to at the moment is whoever is overhearing uh, what it is that is that is being said. Yeah. So, for instance, I was um, I was dealing with a reporter uh, who was doing a, a segment on faith in America generally. And I just said, you know, I don't think faith is all that important the way that you're talking about it, because I don't think that faith itself does anything. It's faith in somebody and explain the gospel. Well, the reporter uh, would call you know, and follow up and do, you know, reports do with fact checking and say, you know, now, but this one would say things like, now, uh, if somebody were to ask, how do you know that Jesus is raised from the dead? What would you say? And then if, if somebody said, how do I become a Christian? What would you say? So we worked through all of that. And it wasn't until maybe a year later that um, I ran into that person and she, said, can I shut the door? And she said, when I was calling you about that, it wasn't for my job. I was dealing with those things and wanting to know those things. And I've become a Christian and she didn't know any other Christians. She found a good church down the street from her. Thankfully, it was a good church and uh, was baptized and serving the Lord. Uh, but that was a that was sort of an, an overheard sort of thing that if she hadn't told me, I would never have known. And I've known a lot of people like that. I mean, I, I was in London um, not long ago uh, last summer and talking to all of these people who came to faith in Christ, 
because they overheard people who had been to a Billy Graham crusade there. Mm. Not even just people who had who had themselves gone, but they had heard people talking about this. And that's how they came to faith in Christ. And so that sense of recognizing you're always being overheard, uh, even by people who sometimes don't seem to be interested <laughs> at all, is I, I think, think there's important. a book one time uh, overhearing the gospel or or having overheard the gospel. Let me let me move toward a, a close here. Um, I want to mention when you were at Highview, um, a former pastor there had had a it had a, a, a major moral misstep, cost his ministry and a lot of other implications. Lots of folks were hurt, um, but he had a great ministry in that church. And when he passed, you I, I recall you making a, a public statement about about his his passing that I, I thought was helpful. And I just want to say uh, I shared with you earlier, but I want to say again, I appreciate you you doing that. Um, much much of his story, there was a redemption side on the other side of, of a lot of a lot of those very difficult and, and terrible things that happened. And uh, to me personally, he acknowledged all those things and didn't didn't blame anyone but himself for for each of them. Dr. Moore has um, has a podcast, and occasionally there's something on there called the Cross and the Jukebox where he interacts in depth with country music. I'm, I'm waiting for him to take up um, uh, American Pie or one of the Sticks songs, Come Sell Away, or, or one of those one of those uh, songs that no one knows the meaning to. We actually have American Pie coming up. So <laughs> All right. It'll be, it'll, be good to, it'll be good to hear. Why do you do that, Dr. Moore? Why do you interact with country music or with, with popular music? Well, largely with country music because uh, – it touches on almost every aspect of uh, human life for, for good and for ill. And so often when you when you can listen to what people are singing about, you can catch them when they're not uh, they're not protecting themselves. They're, they're saying what is it's honestly there. And so you can you can see the way that the gospel answers uh, a lot of those cries. I point anyone to pay to listen, pay attention. I'm going to go back and find the one that you did on George Jones. He stopped loving her today. I assume you've taken that song on. Yes, indeed. Uh, one, one final story in your book, Tempted and Tried. You you tell about uh, trying out a new set of noise reduction headphones <laughs> on an on an airplane. Can you take a minute and kind of give that? Uh, tell us what happened when you when you did that. Well, I had somebody had given me these uh, noise canceling earphones. Uh, somebody at Highview actually. And I uh, I had them on the plane, and it was just disorienting the fact that you I couldn't hear myself, and I recognized that people were turning around and looking at me, and I was singing out loud, and I am not uh, I am not a good singer at all. You, you weren't just singing; you were singing Tom Petty's uh, <laughs> "Free Falling." I think Free Falling. <laughs> <laughs> not a good song on a plane. <laughs> You you gave a you gave a concert, um, Dr. Moore. Thank you for uh, taking the time once again. Our guest has been Dr. Russell Moore, president of the ERLC for the Southern Baptist Convention. Thank you again for taking the the time. Uh, next week during this time, we'll have Aaron Miller, who's one of our bivocational pastors and church planters in West Kentucky. Aaron is a logger by trade and a uh, a noodler, uh, Dr. Moore. If you oh, wow. heard of noodling, he's oh, a noodler by, for for fun which means he sticks his hand in the side of a riverbank and pulls out a big 10 or 15 pound catfish by putting his hand in its mouth. And so that's going to be a fun time with, with him. How can Kentucky Baptist pray for you and your ministry? Well, if just uh, pray for me uh, in, in the way that we would all pray for each other in ministry, but uh, specifically in terms of I've got um, my two oldest sons are launching out into the world. And so, uh, uh, and so uh, prayer for them. 
There are lots of moms and dads who know that who know that yeah. experience. One of the most difficult times for us, Connie and I brought our our oldest daughter to attend school here at Boyce, and I don't know if they were doing this when you were here. We had the weekend around the school. They did everything they did. They had a chapel service. And then they said, now we're going to ask you to pray over your child, and then your child's going to leave here, and you're going to get in your car and drive home. Uh, that was a, a pretty difficult couple of couple of days. But I can once only that, imagine. Once that was over, it was it was better. I'd like to pray for you before I cut you loose. Oh, that's thank okay. you. Dear Lord, thank you for, for Russell Moore, for the ministry that you've given him. Thank you for the intellect that you've given him, his uh, ability and desire, uh, dear Lord, to interact with uh, very difficult issues that folks are trying to reason th through and think through. Uh, we do pray your blessings on his work. We pray for wisdom in the doing of his work. We pray for favor with those with whom he interacts. We pray for the lost folks that he'll come in contact with. You'd give him many open doors to share the gospel and the story that we've heard about the person who uh, asked questions, that there'd be more and more of that would happen through his work. We pray for his two sons who have finished their high school experience, and we pray for them for their next step. Dear Lord, please protect and guard them. Please let no harm come to them. And we pray for Dr. Moore that you would multiply his life and um, multiply the good work that he's doing all across our country. Father, I, I must pray, and we pray together for the end of legalized abortion in our day. We pray that there'd come a day when the hearts and minds of, of Americans are changed on the practice and, and the atrocity of abortion. We pray you'd use us uh, toward that end. We ask you in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Leadership Lessons with Dr. Todd Gray. Find past episodes on our website, at kybaptist.org slash leadership lessons.